Hello, and welcome back to Tectonic, a show in which we look at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. In this episode, we hear from a software designer, AI expert and adherent of transhumanism. From a historical point of view, we're incredibly close to creating AGIs with general intelligence beyond the human level, which will then create better and better AGIs until you get super intelligence. That was Ben Goetzel, founder and CEO of Singularity Net, a blockchain-based AI marketplace. He came into the FT recently to talk to me about the future of AI, transhumanism and benevolent robots. I guess over the past few years, Ben, you've been best known as Chief Scientific Officer at Hanson Robotics, which developed the Sophia robot, and you wrote the software for Sophia. Can you tell us a bit about your involvement in that? How did that come about? Absolutely. So, yeah, I spent much of the last few years leading the software team at Hanson Robotics behind Sophia and their other human-scale robots. And, you know, this came out of a friendship between... David Hansen, the founder of Hansen Robotics, and myself. I'd known David for a number of years through our common involvement in the transhumanist community and our common interest in ultimately creating thinking machines that were not only smarter than humans, but more compassionate and benevolent than humans. So I talked to David for a while. We'd always wanted to do something together with me using AI to sort of upgrade the intelligence of his robots. Then I moved to Hong Kong in 2011. Why did you move to Hong Kong? I fell in love with a Chinese girl and followed her to China. And after I arrived there, then the reason for going appeared. We got a research grant in Hong Kong Poly U for some AI research. And David Hansen visited Hong Kong to explore some Chinese manufacturing options for his robots. I connected him with some other people in the Hong Kong ecosystem. He wound up raising a bunch of money in Hong Kong and China, moving his company to Hong Kong. And then I began working with David there on incorporating some of our AI ideas from the OpenCog software project I've been involved in for a while into the Hanson robots to sort of upgrade their intelligence. And it was through David that I met Simone Giacomelli, who co-founded the SingularityNet blockchain-based AI platform with me. And then again, for the cryptocurrency and blockchain aspect of Singularity, Hong Kong has been a great place. There's a robust crypto ecosystem there. Just before we move on to that, I'd like to ask a bit more about Sophia. Absolutely. Uh, Because, I mean, it is uh, one of the most lifelike humanoid robots. She's an amazing robot. And for our listeners who may have seen Sophia at a tech conference or on videos or on the television, you push the boundaries of humanoid robots. But that caused quite a backlash. A lot of people saying that this really wasn't artificial intelligence, it was gimmickry. What do you say to those people who argue this is a bit of a con trick? So there's a distinction between narrow AI and artificial general intelligence, which is pretty clear to those in the AI field and not necessarily clear to the naive observer who's not an expert, right? Like, I mean, an AGI is an AI that can really learn and reason and understand with the generality of a human or even more so. A narrow AI is an AI that can do one specific class of things really well. So naively, you might think if AlphaGo can play Go better than any human, then it should be able to pass kindergarten or something, right? But it's not true. AlphaGo can play Go better than any human, but it can't pass kindergarten. And naively, you might think if Sophia can hold a reasonable conversation with someone in a way that makes them 
feel like they're having a meaningful conversation, then Sophia must understand what's going on like a human does when they have that conversation. But again, that's not the case. Sophia, in her current form, is a fairly specialized conversation bot with beautiful emotional expression. She doesn't have full common sense understanding. And I think everyone in the AI field gets that distinction, but naive observers don't. And that has caused some confusion. And I've always personally tried to allay that confusion as much as possible. But keeping people from confusing themselves is very hard. (laughs) (laughs) But Sophia is, as you designed it, kind of platform to enable you to learn more and move towards artificial. Yeah. So Sophia is an amazing robot hardware and squishyware platform, right? So David Hansen created a new material called Frobber, which combines silicon with various organic materials to be a very flexible robot face. It can go into all sorts of very realistic-looking expressions. There's sophisticated software and hardware just in the face expressions and the robot movement. And then we use the Sophia robot as a platform for a number of different software systems. So there is a pretty simple system that just lets you make the robot give a speech. Like you can program in this speech and she gives it and she doesn't question what she's saying any more than Donald Trump questions what he's saying when he reads a teleprompter and it says, you know, there were airplanes in the Revolutionary War, right? And then there's a system which is a sophisticated chatbot system that doesn't try to fully understand everything it's saying, but it is choosing what seems like the appropriate thing to say in the context based on who it's talking to, based on the prior conversation. So I think in many ways it's a cut above a Siri or Google Assistant or Alexa, but it's still a sophisticated chatbot, right? And it's integrated with computer vision and emotion recognition, but it's not trying to be an AGI. Then we also use Sophia for experimentation with OpenCog and SingularityNet platforms, which are more sophisticated AIs that we're really developing with artificial general intelligence as a goal. And, you know, for me, as a developer, I know which system I'm running behind Sophia at each point in time. But the funny thing is, when I see Sophia operating in a video or something, from a brief clip, I can't always tell which AI system is running on her. So like when I hear her say something, is she executing a script? Did the chatbot pick that out based on contextual appropriateness? Or did OpenCog synthesize that using some reasoning or some neural network? From a long conversation, I can tell from a little snippet, I can't actually tell what process caused her to say something. And I'm the guy who led the team developing it. So That's of course, kind of interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it's cool. But yet from the point of view of a naive viewer looking at her, yeah, there's no way they can tell if she knew what she was saying or if it was just something canned that she fished out of a database. You can't tell. But on the other hand, when I'm watching a human politician give a speech, I can't tell if they read it from a teleprompter or if they came up with it off the top of their head or if they'd memorized a speech, right? That's okay. It's all interesting. But I do think it's important to be clear about what's going on. Like We don't want to delude people to thinking Sophia is a human-level artificial general intelligence just because she kind of looks like it sometimes. Just like DeepMind doesn't want you to think AlphaGo is smarter than humans in every way just because it can play Go better than humans. All right, let's talk about SingularityNet. Can you explain to us what that is and what you're hoping to achieve with that? Absolutely. It's a blockchain-based platform for AI, and it lets a whole bunch of different AIs cooperate and collaborate together, forming a society of minds 
in which the intelligence of the whole population of AIs talking to each other can be greater than the sum of the intelligence of the parts. So from a simple commercial view, it's a marketplace for AIs. Anyone could put an AI into it, and the AI can charge money to customers who want AI services. The AIs can also outsource work to each other, and they can provide services to each other. And this is what you'd call in the blockchain world a dApp store, a decentralized app store. So it's like a bunch of AIs providing services but they don't have any central controller. One could live on my phone, one could live on your server farm, one can live in Amazon cloud, one can live in Alibaba cloud, right? But they're all communicating together. So the underlying architecture is more like BitTorrent or Ethereum or Bitcoin than it is like, you know, Amazon cloud or iTunes or the Apple App Store or something. It's decentralized. So each individual AI may be owned by one guy who will get paid if someone uses it, but the whole network is owned by everyone and no one and is controlled by you know democratic voting and consensus mechanisms comprised by all of the AIs in the network. How would I, as a customer of SingularityNet, know whether any of these AI services worked? Well, there's a reputation and rating system, just like you have on Amazon or eBay or Uber or something. You can choose to go only with a five-star AI that does a lot of great reviews for doing what you wanted, On the other hand, if you want to get a great discount, you may go with something that doesn't have many ratings yet. You could view it sort of like hiring humans to do outsourcing work on TaskRabbit or Upwork or something, right? Some will charge more, some will charge less. An AI that doesn't have that much track record will have to charge less to get people to use it. Now, two companies that are using SingularityNet are Ping'an, the giant Chinese insurance company, and Domino's Pizza. Can you tell us how they are using it? Yeah, so Domino's is being very open about it. They're after optimized pizza delivery, mostly in Kuala Lumpur and Malaysia. So we've been working with Domino's in Malaysia and Singapore. And the traffic in Kuala Lumpur can be very dynamic and unpredictable. So they're looking for better AI routing algorithms. And we're using a sort of bounty type mechanism where our own Singularity Net team is doing some AI development, but also we're putting a reward out saying we'll give a certain amount of AGI cryptographic token to anyone who contributes an AI that can help Domino's with optimal routing. So this is really using the crypto ecosystem and the existence of a token to incentivize development. But we're serving as the intermediary between the AI that random people may create to solve this problem And we're doing the integration with Domino's own IT infrastructure. So that's quite a cool one. And how's that going? Are people getting their pizza faster? Not yet, but we've just started. We're launching our request for AI portal within the next couple of weeks, which will include this bounty for some of Domino's tasks on it. So it's quite early stage. I mean, we launched the SingularityNet platform formally at the end of 2017, but the beta version that we launched at the end of February 2019, this is really the first scalable, easy-to-use version of the platform. So following that launch, now we've started to create these various commercial collaborations. Ping on, our non-disclosure with them is a little more limiting, so we can't discuss exactly what we're doing. But I would say we're working with Ping on and with a couple other large insurance companies and investment banks in China and Hong Kong. And we're working on a lot of cool projects there. So one thing we're doing with some customers in that region is we're working on hedging real estate risk. So you want to do risk on risk off prediction of when there's high potential of downside movement in real estate markets. And then you can present customers who may own a lot of real estate 
with a head, which is a dynamically weighted basket of other financial instruments anti-correlated with downside movements in real estate. Another thing we're doing with some of our larger Asian customers is credit risk assessment. So you can do that for individuals. You can do that for unbanked individuals. You can do that for small to medium enterprises. So sort of alternative credit risk assessment for individuals or entities who may not have the right sort of data to drive the more traditional credit risk assessment. Machine learning can be very valuable here because you can look at someone's social network profile. You can look at text about them. And the AI algorithms can summarize a lot of different kinds of data and use them to make a rational assessment of credit risk. These can be very interesting applications. And the financial services industry is a fast-moving early adopter of all sorts of AI technologies, including AI and blockchain. Do you think the services you're helping to develop are replacing human labor or augmenting them by and large? It's very case specific, right? In some cases, you're creating a lot of new jobs, perhaps temporarily. In some cases, you clearly are replacing human labor. I mean, in the case of these finance industry applications I've just talked about, we're really doing things they can't do right now, right? I mean, Small businesses can't get loans often because there's no rational way to assess credit risk of a small business. So if we can enable financial institutions to offer them loans, some of these small businesses will be creating human jobs themselves and they wouldn't have been able to hire otherwise. So in the short run, at least, you're really promoting human employment. In the case of Domino's Pizza Delivery, hard to say. We might be, in some cases, enabling them to hire fewer pizza delivery people by letting each delivery person deliver more pizza per unit time. On the other hand, we might be able to enable them to get pizza to people who otherwise wouldn't bother to order a pizza because it would take too long, right? So then they're going to hire more delivery people. So it's it really is quite subtle. I mean, there are some cases where it's clear, like if you're automating truck driving, or if you're making like a robot McDonald's that eliminates the human burger flippers, you're really just getting rid of human jobs. On the other hand, in some cases, there are new jobs like labeling or annotating data to feed to the AI that are being created that weren't there before. In the big picture, there's no doubt in my mind, AI will eliminate essentially all human jobs, and it will happen step by step. But it's not happening one-on-one, like this guy's job is gone, that guy's job is gone. What happens is companies have to reorganize themselves to accommodate for AI. Temporarily, this may increase the number of people they hire, or it may decrease. And the overall pattern of automation eliminating human jobs, it's more of a statistical pattern, which happens on top of a lot of chaos in many different industries. What's going to happen when we do eliminate all of the jobs? People will be having a lot better time, and they will look back on the time when we had to do repetitive, boring tasks we didn't want to do, just get food on the table and rent. They'll look back on that as an unimaginable form of barbarism, and people will enjoy themselves with social, recreational, spiritual, athletic, intellectual, aesthetic pursuits. Ask anyone under the age of 25, they'll tell you there's a lot more entertaining things to do with your time than work for a living. (laughs) Now, one of the other roles that you have is chairman of the Artificial General Intelligence Society. I'd like to get on to this subject as well. First of all, though, could you define for our listeners exactly what your interpretation of artificial general intelligence is? Artificial general intelligence is AI, so an engineered system, software or hardware system, which is able to robustly generalize beyond what it's been programmed for or what it has experienced. And To do this in an absolute way is beyond the human level also. We're not 
perfect at generalizing. If you try to get us to navigate a maze in 507-dimensional space, we'll probably do very poorly, right? But we're much better at generalizing beyond our experience and training than current AI systems are. But you can see baby steps in that direction, like Alpha Zero is a step in that direction beyond Alpha Go because it can play many different games, but it can't generalize what it learned at Go to help it with chess, which a human can do on a certain abstract level, right? And with Sophia Robot, I mean, the simple chatbots we've used in her don't learn much of anything. They may learn what your name are or what city they're in. But when we use OpenCog's system to control Sophia, then she is learning more and more bit by bit. And, you know, if she talks to a bunch of people from Hong Kong, she may get better and better at disambiguating the things they say the more she talks to them, even though she wasn't programmed or trained all that in advance. She's learning from experience. So we're gradually moving from very narrow AIs and only do what they were exactly programmed or trained to do toward general purpose AIs. But you see this limitation in many funny cases. Like we've talked to a number of Chinese companies who want Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. ...to help them train their machine learning algorithms to recognize African people's faces. Because they have a huge amount of training data of Chinese people's faces, but they didn't have much training data on African people's faces. And the narrow AI they have, the deep neural nets they have, they're not able to generalize much from Chinese guys to African guys' faces, whereas we can do that. Like, I remember the first time I saw a lot of black people when I was maybe... Well, I was born in Brazil, so when I was a baby, I must have seen a lot of black people. But I moved to the U.S. when I was one and a half years old. There weren't a lot of African-Americans around Oregon. Then when I was seven years old, I moved to Philadelphia area. And, you know, for the first day, all the black people looked very similar to me, which is kind of embarrassing. But after a day, I generalized my knowledge of white people's faces to black people's faces. The current AIs in China can't do that, right? All the knowledge they have of recognizing Chinese people's faces doesn't generalize. And this is bad, right? So, so how are you doing that? Well, we're using AGI-ish technology. So we're not using just deep neural nets. We're using deep neural nets connected with a symbolic logic engine that can do what's called abductive reasoning. It can do some analogy reasoning. It's able to make more creative leaps beyond its training data. So this is what you'd call neural symbolic AI systems. You take a neural net that's trained to recognize data patterns, and you take a symbolic logic engine that's configured to be able to abstract to a greater degree, and you connect them together so the logic engine can abstract from the patterns the neural net recognized. And this, I think, will be a very big thing in the next two, three, four, five years. Neural symbolic AI, where you get the best of neural nets for data analysis and perceptual pattern recognition, and the best of probabilistic logic engines for abstraction and generalization. So in practical terms, that means that you can derive a lot more meaning out of less data. Well, that's right. So we're working with a number of firms, both in China and in Europe now, on traffic analysis. And there, the issue they're having is 
They want to generalize to traffic patterns they haven't seen before. And traffic is very strange and unpredictable. And like if you have the World Cup in the city, that will cause traffic patterns that weren't there before. So an AI that's very narrowly generalizing from the data patterns it's seen, it won't be able to deal with the traffic that happens after a World Cup game. But I mean, a human can sort of think on their feet. So there we're integrating some symbolic logic implemented in our OpenCog AI platform. We're integrating that with deep neural nets for visual perception to enable more agile like generalization from one traffic pattern to a new traffic situation. Now, Ray Kurzweil has forecast that we're going to achieve generalized intelligence in about 10 years' time in 2029. Does that sound about right to you? Five to 30 years is what I keep saying. <laughs> so, I mean, it could happen well before 2029, or it could be delayed into the 2030s. It's very hard to predict, partly because it depends not just on technological issues, but on what various companies and nonprofits and universities and governments choose to allocate resources to, right? But in the big picture of human evolution, it almost doesn't matter, right? That's like asking, was civilization developed 10,000 or 10,050 years ago? From a historical point of view, we're incredibly close to creating AGIs with general intelligence beyond the human level, which will then create better and better AGIs until you get super intelligence unimaginably beyond the human level. We're really close to that now, which is amazing. Now, reading a book of interviews with 25 AI experts, some of them argue that it's never going to happen. Yeah, I mean, uh, Why is that? right until the Wright brothers made their airplanes fly, there were physics experts arguing that manned flight would never happen, right? Humanity is like that. Expert opinions are always all over the map, right? And I mean, there was a saying from early last century, like, if you have a distinguished uh, physicist in a great university saying something is impossible, you can bet almost certainly that they're going to be wrong. You know, with self-driving cars, it's amazing. Ten years ago, I was telling people all the time that within our lifetimes, we're going to have automated vehicles and we're not going to be driving anymore. Almost everyone thought I was nuts. Then 2015, DARPA Grand Challenge, automated driving Google started doing it. Now everyone's doing it. Now people think it's obvious. And they even think it was always obvious. They forget they ever thought it was impossible. If you look overall at the attitude of the AI research community or humanity as a whole, the degree to which AGI is taken seriously now, as opposed to five or 10 years ago, it's been an amazing change. So you see the book you read now, maybe half and half, but if you were 10 years earlier, it would have been 10% pro-AGI 90% against, and five years later, it's going to be 98% pro 2% against. Now, Kurzweil also says that the moment of singularity will happen in 2045. Why is there a gap? I think Ray is wrong there, personally. Can you first explain what he means by singularity and what you sure. mean? Sure. I think we mean the same thing by singularity and the same thing that Werner Vinge meant by singularity and that I.J. Good meant in 1965 by the intelligence explosion. What we mean is, A, you have AIs that are much, much smarter than people. B, these AIs are able to advance science and technology so fast that you have new technologies, new discoveries, new revolutions of understanding coming about so fast the human mind can't possibly keep up. We don't really need to get to infinite rate of advance, but if the rate of advance is so fast it seems infinite to human beings, that's good enough, right? So this intelligence explosion, if it happens, would surely rank as the biggest deal in human history, wouldn't it? From our point of view, absolutely so. From the point of view of a caveman, 
I don't know, we might seem closer to the super AI than to a caveman from their point of view, right? But in a way, it's the end of human history because after you have superhuman AIs, humans are no longer the main story on the planet, right? You have AIs much smarter than us. We're going to be doing things humans can't understand. Humans will either be able to plug the AI into their brain, give up their illusions of self and free will and autonomy and join the superhuman mind matrix, or else live happily ever after in the human national park with the squirrels and the birds watched over by the AIs outside, right? So yeah, it's the end of us as the top monkeys on the planet, which is a very big deal, right? And I think from having human-level AGI to having a singularity, the only way that'll be 16 years is if the human-level AGIs themselves want to take it slowly to be sure they get it right. Because once you have a human-level AGI, it can learn programming, it can learn computer science, it can learn hardware engineering, it can copy itself a million times, and those million copies of it can share knowledge by, you know, internet telepathy. I can't see how it's going to take 16 years to get from that human-level AGI to a massively superhuman AGI architected by successively smarter human-level AGIs. But what you're saying is that for a very large number of people who live on the planet today, they are going to live in a world where humans are no longer the smartest algorithms on the planet. That's almost certain. And I think people may find this future world tremendously refreshing and joyful, actually. Right now, it's hard for us to imagine what it would be like to live in a world where half of our babies died in infancy, where a mother dying in childbirth was extremely common occurrence, and where our teeth would all rot by age 40, so we'd have 10 toothaches throughout our mouth. We just assume that was a life of misery, right? So in the same way, once we're living in a world of abundance where there's no death and disease, where you don't have to work for a living, where if you have mental illness or depression, you can just insert a modification in your brain to stop it, we'll be unable to imagine the life of suffering and tedium that humans had in 2000. 19. And the fact that humans aren't the top ape on the planet is not going to be a worry whatsoever. Well, the other way of looking at it, as some people do, is that humans will go the way of horses, that we will be economically useless and therefore we'll fall off a cliff. I prefer to think of the squirrels in the national park. I mean, they run around, they live their squirrel lives. We maintain the park in good condition. If there's a plague there, we'll bring them some medicine. We have no desire to meddle in the love lives or the acorn hunting behaviors of, of the squirrels in the park. We are more intelligent than them, but on the level that they want to live, we're not pestering them much, right? So I think you'll have two choices. You can merge with the super AI and you'll get all sorts of new experiences and transhuman intelligence, but you're not really human anymore. Or live in the human world, you get a 3D printer next to your dishwasher that will print any form of matter that you want. You get an internet connection in your brain to do Google thought searches and send thought SMSs whenever you want to. But because you chose to remain in human form, you know, you're cognitively limited compared to the superhuman AIs out there. But it's a perfectly valid aesthetic and moral personal choice to remain in human form. Not every being needs to be maximally intelligent. Like, I'm happy that trees, dogs, chipmunks, and bacteria and fish exist, just like I think humans should still exist, even if there are superhuman AIs out there. Now, you're obviously very long on machines, but you're also very long on humans in that you believe in transhumanism. I'm long on animals and plants, too. I mean, <laughs> I think all forms of life have their own beauty and should exist and flourish. Tell us about your belief in transhumanism. Do you want to live forever? 
I want to live until I get sick of living. I'm opposed to involuntary death. I don't want to be forced to live forever. If a billion years from now I get sick of it, I'd like to be able to annihilate myself. And you don't think it would be a bit boring living forever? I doubt it, but I'm open to that possibility. I mean, I would like to hike on every trail on the planet. I'd like to travel to many different star systems. I'd like to learn every language, learn to play every instrument. I'd like to inhabit the body of every kind of animal and see what that's like. I'd like to read every novel ever written. So there's a lot of stuff left to do, right? <laughs> I'd like to see my grandchildren, great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren grow up. Like, I have a 14-month-old granddaughter and a 16-month-old son. I would like to see them grow up and have children and grandchildren of their own, right? But I think it was Steve Jobs who said that death was like the black on the back of a mirror. It's only when the black is there you can actually see yourself. Is that true? That's maybe Steve Jobs' own cognitive limitation. I, I, hmm. I, I, don't, I don't personally share it. I think people do derive meaning from the fact that they're going to die. But once you offer them the immortality pill, they're going to take it and they will find other ways to derive meaning that are less macabre and self-tormenting. How is transhumanism going to come about? Transhumanism will just be the default attitude that people have once technology has advanced a bit. So the philosophy of transhumanism really is a philosophy that says human beings should be able to grow and improve themselves in whatever direction they want. They should be able to upgrade their bodies, upgrade their brains so they can learn and understand and perceive more. And the freedom to personally chart your own course of growth mentally and physically should be a basic right and something that should be encouraged. And, you know, Nietzsche had the saying, man is something that must be overcome, right? I guess the philosophy of transhumanism is each human should have the right and opportunity to overcome their own limitations insofar as they wish to. To me, this always just seemed like utterly obvious. Why not? And then I was amazed to find that people have a different attitude, like, no, it's morally wrong to add a third eye on the top of your head, or it's morally wrong to increase your intelligence, or it's morally wrong to replace your male sex organ with a female sex organ, or you know, morally wrong to have... Wi-Fi implanted in your head so you can telepathically exchange thoughts with other people. Why people think this kind of expansion should not be our free right to explore is kind of baffling to me, actually. But you think that we will continue to have bodily form? We're not just going to be uploading our brains to computers? Some people will want to maintain bodily form and they will continue to have it. Other people won't want to have bodily form and you'll just upload yourself into a computer, live in a virtual reality... Some people will want to upload and live in a virtual reality resembling this world. Others will upload into a more abstract form of mind that doesn't need a three-dimensional world to live in. I think we're going to see far greater diversity of forms of body and mind than we have right now. I mean, ultimately, inhabiting a body like a human body will be a sort of aesthetic or moral choice rather than the necessity, and it will slow you down, right? Because if you're living in a computer in a virtual world, the clock speed could run much faster than human body could operate. So then the people who chose to remain in human-like bodies or in robots that interact with humans, they're going to be going a million times slower than the AIs that inhabit a virtual world. But on the other hand, it's not necessary for every mind to operate at the fastest possible clock speed any more than every musician needs to be a speed metal guitarist, right? There can be a beauty and integrity to minds that operate at various 
speeds and various levels of intelligence. And I think transhumanists are after a great diversity of forms of mind and body, not like everyone must mind upload and become the fastest, smartest possible super machine. Are you not worried that something could go horribly wrong with this vision? Many things could go horribly wrong. If I look at the future from a purely rational, sort of logical empiricist perspective, my best conclusion is none of us has any idea what the hell is going to happen. We're talking about a domain of experience that's significantly beyond anything we've observed. You could argue, as Nick Bostrom has done, among others, that we should therefore slow down and not develop these technologies until we have a rational basis to predict what will happen. Now, there's two issues with that. One is, even if we waited 10,000 years, I doubt we're ever going to come up with a rational basis to predict what will happen when there are beings 10,000 times smarter than us. The other problem is, if the UK and US, for example, decide to stop developing AI, China's not going to, Russia's not going to, Kazakhstan's not going to, right? I mean, there's too much economic advantage and too much good to be done in terms of curing aging and death and scarcity, right? So we're going in that direction. It's going to be very hard to stop because of the economic and the short-term humanitarian advantages of AI. On a more personal basis, I feel in my gut this is going to be a universe of tremendous joy and abundance that certainly will have shortcomings but will appear utopian relative to what we experience now. But in the end, that may say more about my own optimistic personality than about the real conditions of the world. So in some, you think all this is inevitable and therefore we ought to be optimistic about it all. I think it's close to inevitable given where we are right now. We're so close to creating these technologies, and there's so much well-known economic advantage now. Like, China is orienting a huge percentage of their economy toward AI. Why would they want to stop? Because they can see that's their best chance at competitive advantage in the world economy, and they're correct. It makes sense to be worrying about the downsides, but the downside I'm most worried about is the fact that right now most of the AI firepower in the world is controlled by a few large companies and a few large governments, and it's oriented toward what I would frame as selling, spying, killing, and gambling, right? I mean, it's advertising companies, it's government surveillance, it's military, and then it's market prediction and risk management. So if the first superhuman intelligence has on its mind primarily selling, spying, killing, and gambling... Maybe that won't be an optimal transition from here to the post-singularity world. So what behooves us is to make sure that AI is going to be used not only for those things. I mean, they're going to happen. AI should also be used for education, for elder care, for mental health therapy, for scientific research, and for the good of the world. If we can make the AI on the planet used for the good of the world, then the mind state and the value system of the superhuman AI that comes out of our AGIs is more likely to be beneficially oriented. So we, we should be worried less about the ineffable unknown of what a superintelligence might do than about the transition period when we have powerful AIs governed by large corporations and governments, because not only is this transition period going to regulate our lives for the next few decades, but it also will set the initial condition for the development of that superintelligence. Well, Ben, you've given us a huge amount to think about, but thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tectonic, 
In the meantime, we welcome comments and suggestions from listeners, so please email us at tectonic at ft.com and let us know what you think of the show. Tectonic is produced by Fiona Simon. 